0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, December 6th, the Rifles or Ruffles edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast, Outward. And hosting with me today is Georgetown University history professor, Marsha Chatlin. Welcome back to the show, Marcia. So excited to be here. <laughs> And we're joined in D.C. Yes, that's right. All three of us are in the same room by Latifa Lyles, a vice president at the National Network to End Domestic Violence, the former director of the Women's Bureau at the Labor Department under Barack Obama, and a D.C. Democratic State Committee woman. Hey, Latifa. Good morning. All right. Before we get into the episode, we have one small order of business. We are having another Is It Sexist call-in show for the holidays. So if you have an is it sexist question that has been burning a hole in your pocket, call it in to us at 646-907-9859. I'm really excited for our topics this week. I think we have a lot of good stuff to talk about. Um, We're going to start with the concept of blackfishing, where white Instagram influencers trick followers into thinking they're black by tanning their skin, wearing wigs, among other things. Uh, Then we'll talk about gender reveal parties, where you gather all your loved ones to celebrate your fetus's genitals. And finally, we will talk about Say Her Name, a new HBO documentary about the life and death of Sandra Bland. For our Slate Plus segment today... We have a hot topic that a lot of people have been up in my Twitter mentions about. Uh, We're going to talk about whether or not it's sexist to make fun of Melania Trump's White House Christmas decorations. So if you're not a Slate Plus member yet, you definitely want to be. And you can start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash thewavesplus. All right. Let's get into it. Uh, Blackfishing. Latifah, can you give us a little primer on this phenomenon and why it's in the news right now? So,
2: of course, with, you know, Twitter fame, YouTube uh, okay. rock stars, and, and the like, you know, there's so many folks out there who basically their claim to fame is their social media. And with that, of course, comes, um, you know, just a sea of individuals with personalities, something to say or <laughs> something to look at. And of course... Some people are popular just on, you know, their fashion and their looks and, you know, their makeup and their clothes and and so on. And so recently, the conversation has centered around women who are uh, being accused of or in some sometimes um, admitting that they are trying to appear to be or present themselves as a person of color or a black person. Um, through a combination of makeup and tanning and what folks might call culturally appropriated outfits and clothing. And there's a combination of folks who are like, you know, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm, I'm white. And then there are others who are saying you're clearly appropriating and, you know, you know it it's it's very obvious and the question is you know there are people who are very very intensely opposed to this and a lot of these women are being attacked for um you know what what looks like they are posing as someone that they're not and then some people are just leave them alone it's they're just expressing themselves <laughs> and so there's a lot to unpack but in that world there's going to be more people um expressing themselves in more diverse ways. And so the question is, um, with, with more options and more platforms, um, is this really a big deal?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I, this is a fascinating topic to me because it's, uh, it made me think a lot about what race means and how people identify people as different races, um, you know, just by looking at them, it kind of drove home to me the fact that race is, is totally constructed of signifiers. And so, like, it kind of made me think of, like, the paper bag test or, or mm-hmm. the pencil test in, mm-hmm. like, uh, Jim Crow or apartheid South Africa, where it's like, okay, how, you know, at, at what point do you interpret somebody to be a person of color versus white, Um and especially for these people who are like, Oh no, I just get really tan in the summer. Or like, why shouldn't I be allowed to perm my hair mm-hmm. or, or wear a nameplate necklace and hoop earrings? And it's like, at what point does that sort of tip over? And instead of just being like, Oh, this is a, a tan white woman with curly hair and wearing, um, I, I don't know, a tracksuit and contoured face makeup into thinking, Oh, this is a woman of color.
0: Okay, so blackfishing makes me deeply uncomfortable. Um, (laughs) But a lot of things on Instagram make me uncomfortable. So I'm actually, today's my last class that I teach called Sex, Love, and Race in American Life and Culture. And we look at the ways that the law dictates, right, racial categories and how that's changed. And one of the things that's really interesting is the U.S. Census used to be a process in which someone would look at someone and determine their race. And so if you look at some people in the archival records... At every census, they're a different race. And a lot of it's contingent on the racial ideologies and racial knowledge of the person doing the looking. And so one of the things I think is really interesting, if we look at the fact that so many American families are deeply homogenous. So what a person of color looks like is often um, interpreted through the lens of what your frame of reference is. And so I think it's really interesting when um, these black fishers are exposed People who say, well, I, surely I could tell that this is a white person doing this, or I was actually fooled by it. And so I think it it serves as kind of a Rorschach of, of what we see and how we identify. But I think that the lengths that these Instagram folks go to um, for a kind of – deceptive practice that is not just about adornment or the political economy of what's hot or what's beautiful. But I think that there's this kind of sick joy that people get from the deception. And it just reminds me of a lot of the research about blackface, that one of the reasons why blackface minstrelsy was so exciting to a lot of whites is that they used it as a way to Express emotions that they couldn't express in the larger society. That they could laugh at um, highly sexualized characterizations. They could do all of this body humor stuff within the context of saying it's the black face that's making me act so zany. And so I, I just you know like just because you can do something doesn't mean you should <laughs> do something. That's my lesson for everyone today.
2: I mean sometimes the, the, I, the other thing is I, I feel like there's a there's all these different sort of cultural norms that go beyond. Um, race and culture and are more like pop culture norm. You know, I mean, just the idea that this particular outfit and paradigm and hairstyle exemplifies, you know, an African American, even for me, I'm just kind of like, I, I don't see that right away. I see that, oh, she looks like somebody in a, you know, a Cardi B video. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I'm not thinking, I'm thinking more about the cultural significance um, in terms of like where we are pop culture. And so that This is a really big fashion trend and that's why she's wearing that outfit for the super uber – like for example, going back to makeup, um, Mm -hmm. if you don't mind. I mean contouring is everything like right now. It's like there's not – like it went from, you know, highlighting to contouring in every single – video there's a problem. I have a little bit of like a candy crush problem with (laughs) beauty videos right now. And I'm like, should I be doing this? Um, <laughs> have you ever tried it? No, I've never done it. I'm I'm very tempted, but everybody contours now. It's like you know, even even African American women now. It's just sort of like you have a there's a whole pattern. It's up here in the dots in the forehead, mm-hmm. and then there's a little bit in the cheek, and then you do a little bit, and then you do two lines on the nose <laughs> apparently. And so, I'm
0: mesmerized right
2: now. <laughs> no, you do it. You do like. <laughs> have you seen these videos, Marsha? There's I two have. lines of the nose, and then you highlight your top of uh-huh. the lip. I think makes yeah. your lip look bigger. But, but anyway, it's all
1: different colors too. Yeah, and all different. Col- then you just blend it all in. But do, I have. I've seen people wearing that in real life, and I can always tell it. It always looks weird, unless oh, it's really? like. Well, actually, now that I'm saying it, I realize that's a paradox. And perhaps, I, I the really good ones, I don't know, and so I can't tell. And ha, so, ha, ha. <laughs> um, but I, I've seen these um, stupid like. Uh, blog posts that are like celebrities from the 90s before contouring was a thing and and that same celebrity now and they look so different yeah, yeah. and it really especially for you know if you're under these bright lights of a studio or a red carpet sure. it really does make a big difference but i to your point i feel like this has really opened the door for people to – and, you know, with Instagram filters and stuff, it's they can completely change the way they look. And when that's the only window you have into people's lives, you can really make money off seeming like you're something else. And Mm -hmm. so part of me was like, oh, it's – you know, there's these white people recognizing that uh, there's a market for and a desperate need for, like, beauty or or Instagram influencers of color. And so I – the fact that they're making money off of it is, to me, the most offensive thing, that it's somebody who's not a person of color making money off of the stuff that, you know, a person of color could be making money off of.
2: Right. But if I if I, if I can be really cynical, the other part that at first when I saw this, I was like, great. I mean, we need more people who value African-American, um, you know, makeup and, cult, you know, and, and beauty and what those trends mean for the industry and the everyday user theoretically, is, like, going in the right direction. So, like, if you think about, you know, like I was saying, like, before, like, we have, like, Mendes and <clears throat> henna is really, really, really popular, mm-hmm. like, the cat eye and the smoky. Like, a lot of that is Eastern culture and, um, you know, just – An average. I have a friend who, a South Asian friend who, who's like, you know, people used to make fun of my really dark lines in my in my um my my eyeliner when I was younger, and now it's like, you know, people coming up to me and asking me how can I get that bright line in my, you know, that dark line in my eye, and so on. Some level, because you know everything about you know hair and makeup, shades, texture, has always been so Eurocentric in a way that I was thinking it was signaling. A, a shift in what's acceptable and what's norm, and I think that that that's what I initially saw is like, yeah, it is not, you know, the question of like having to buy five foundations to get to your shade, or having to buy something super expensive, and whereas your friends who are white or not people of color can just go to the CVS, or um, you know, the 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 fact that we can go, like, I I blame this a little bit on social media. The fact that I went to a Walgreens, I was on, I was on the road and, um, I saw all of these African American hair care products. And I was, flo- I was like, where are my friends? Like, we're just in the Walgreens downtown. And I, I was like, I have to go to a special place to get all this stuff. But like, you know, things that you had to make a special trip for back home to get the products you need for your hair, just like in the CVS, you know? And so I do think that there's a wave of like, you know, everybody's style and texture isn't the same and industries need to be responsive and retailers need to be responsive. And so on the other hand, I think that Um, access and visibility of what it means to have and to be beautiful and to sort of subscribe to like commercial makeup and all of that is in a totally different place than it was like 10 years ago. Hmm.
0: So I think that point you raise about the expansive options in the beauty market, I definitely as a woman of color see that where, um, you know, getting a hair supply, you can get it at a CVS, there's more options for makeup. But one of the reasons that The marketplace has opened is because a lot of these retailers saw how much um, African-American beauty brands were making, Mm -hmm. and they either acquired those businesses or started to replicate them. And so I think that the hair and makeup industry is a really good example of when there is that tipping point in which these larger um, manufacturers and companies see that there's a market, they can just Kind of swoop in and take all of it. And there's this great interview with um, the founder of uh, Carol's Daughter who says like, yeah, I sold my business to Big Beauty. You know, I was like making stuff in my home in, you know, Harlem and, and selling it. And this was an opportunity. So I think that like everything in America, um, you know, <laughs> no,
2: I can get it at Target. <laughs> yeah. You know,
0: but I think the I think one of the consequences of, of visibility and, and expansion of of the vision of what is acceptable, there's often a level of erasure. And I think this is where people get really uncomfortable when, you know, when Cosmo does these things like, look at this new braiding trend. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, you know, I, you know, and so I think sometimes it's not these debates about cultural appropriation isn't so much about the fact that someone has recognized something of value in a non-dominant culture. It's just in the erasure of all the people and the history and substance that, I think is where people often struggle with. And I, I think there is an element of blackfishing, though, that I feel like is a little bit of ridicule almost. I don't know. There's something about it that doesn't seem in the spirit of appreciation so much as appropriation
2: and a kind of, um, I don't know, mockery. I agree. And in some ways, I think that the makeup jobs that they do are just so subpar. <laughs> I just I mean, just like. Just to, be, just to be honest, like, it was a thing I was kind of like, ah, I think it's a little bit too much highlighter on your cheekbones there. <laughs> yeah, the highlight. So the person who was sort of the
1: um, center of this recent news cycle about blackfishing was named uh, Emma Hallberg. Um, and uh, a woman from Toronto, Juana Thompson, went on Twitter and uh, started a thread that was like, hey, this white woman and and in fact, a lot of white women are, quote unquote, cosplaying as black women on Instagram. And so this one woman, Emma Hallberg, really does, I think, overdo it with the highlighter or maybe not just the highlighter, but also the filter she puts on Instagram to make it look like her face is like a disco ball or something. Listen, if but, Emma wants to like devote her life to being in community with black people, <laughs> Emma is more than welcome
0: to get involved in like you know, struggle, support <laughs> black cultural institutions, um, you know, make herself vulnerable to the attacks and alienation due to racist society. I would love Emma. But the the Instagram <laughs> is just, um, it, it makes me wonder what her proximity to real people of color are. Because well, she's a Swedish. Question. Question. No offense.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't think a lot of Swedish people would take offense to that. I think it's very white. Country. And, and yeah. so
0: I think that this is also part of this kind of thing that, in my experience, people who do spend time with people um, who are different than them, then t- tend to have a respect and reverence for the mm-hmm. the cultural contributions they have and create a healthy boundary with it.
1: Yeah. Oh. I This also made me think of how um, – oh, wow, Latifah printed out some photos. Yeah. Her. <laughs> I'm like sneaking a peek at this. Um, Wow. It made me think about – the way i feel when people will try to like call themselves queer or or appropriate elements of queer culture without actually having that sort of lived experience and and i was like why do i feel so much um why do i feel protective and and so much ownership over those things and i came back to what you were saying marsha where i feel like the fact that um you know people of, in various marginalized communities have to live with the, you know, sort of social or legal or cultural uh, boundaries to, to thriving in this society means that we get to keep the good things too. And that if you want to claim the good things, I feel like a lot of people, uh, women of color have said this better than I'm saying it right now. But like, if you want, if you want the good things, no, everyone wants the good things and no one wants the bad things, you know? Exactly. I guess there's also there's various versions of this, like even if you're not taking on if you're not an Instagram person actually trying to trick people into believing you're a person of color, there's always been people who will try to adopt like the like vocal rhythms or like general clothing of, of people of color. And um when we talk about cultural appropriation, I feel like there's always an argument about you know, what is the culturally, when is it an appropriate, appropriative and exploitative? And when is it, you know, appreciative and whatever. So like, those are things that I I think, I still don't know the answers to, I wouldn't put that on the same level of blackfishing, but the where it intersects with capitalism, and these white people making money off of, you know, black people thinking they're black. uh, It's, it's like, where the money goes
2: seems really important to me. I think I think that the the question of making money in so, on social media too is a big one and and there's sort of this you know how do I stand out this idea that you can become a sensation overnight I um, mean there's a, there's a lot of appeal to you know how how can I get myself out there now that we have all of these social media tools but the other thing I will say is there's a little bit and we didn't I didn't like research this but I do think there's also with a lot of these like people who are intensively making themselves over but there's some sort of pathology that I can't put my finger on when um some of these videos you watch and it's like oh okay primer I get primer you put primer on before the foundation put the foundation on it's like pre-primer and then it's like primer and then there's moisturizer and then there's pre-foundation then there's foundation then there's a highlighter then there's a blur and I'm just like okay so and then there are people who you know just go really overboard and they do in fact look 100% different whether they're black fishing or not and I do think that there's this question of like this, this, this over sort of use and, you know, with filters and like really intensive levels of like makeup application to people using these platforms to be different and, the, you know, to sort of like show themselves and show up as different people. And sometimes the transformations are a little creepy. You know, it's like there's no plastic surgery here, but you literally look like a completely different person. And so I think there's another question about, you know, people having this experience of like doing themselves over, which, you know, is just... Is something that interesting, something, I don't know, something to think about as we sort of, you know, have more access to filters and you know, blur, blur, blenders, <laughs> and things like that. But I, but that's the other piece of it is, um, you don't really understand or know what's going on in people's lives and yeah, what their proximity is to culture. That's the other piece of it. Like, I, I'm a little sensitive, but I'm not. I have the same reaction to people who, you know, wear henna tattoos and, and mendis and walk around in saris, and I'm just like, what? But I don't know. I mean, maybe they're part of a culture and part of a family of you know South Asian descent. I have no idea. But you still have that. <gasps> that reaction where you kind of like recoil and think that might not be good. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I'm like, you know, if I'm not going to judge, then it's sort of like, you know, be you. Yeah. It's tricky.
0: I used to um, teach in Oklahoma and I felt like there, there was a, there was a big kind of um, Southern highly feminized culture, lots of makeup, makeup all the time. And I was talking to a group of students and I said, you know, I, I uh alternate between wearing makeup and not wearing makeup so people know what I look like <laughs> because I find it really um kind of jarring the few times that I've had to be professionally contoured or gotten my makeup done for TV I feel and look like a completely different pe- person and I would hate to, <laughs> for there to ever be a moment that I'm without makeup and someone says who is that <laughs> and I mean that seriously you know I you hear these stories of older women who said my husband's never seen me without makeup yeah. I'm like I'm sorry. Face. What without your face? Right, <laughs> putting your face on to go to the gym. So, um, I just think that if you have an opportunity for people to access what you <laughs> look like, <laughs> I think it's a good thing, and I think it it helps remind you that you know these filters and these images is not the sum total of yourself.
1: Yeah, uh, I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, um, listeners, let us know what you think. Appreciation, appropriation. You can. Reach us at the waves at slate.com. All right. Gender reveal parties, those fun little soirees where you get to celebrate the gender binary. I am sure that all of our listeners have either attended one or been invited to one, or maybe seen videos of people opening a box of pink balloons or slicing open a cake that's blue. Or in the case of one Border Patrol agent in Arizona, shooting a target filled with powder colored the color of his fetus, which exploded and started a forest fire that burned more than 45,000 acres of land and caused more than $8 million in damages. That happened in April 2017, but it's back in the news and in the discourse, TM, because that guy pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor, just a misdemeanor, in late September, and people are still hearing about it and processing it now. Any part of this story would have been a story, the fact that he's a border patrol agent, the fact that he shot a target and it exploded and started a forest fire, the fact that that forest fire caused more than $8 million in damages, the fact that he only was charged with a misdemeanor for it, uh, or the fact that he only pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor for it. It's almost too perfect. It's like a Mad lids of of all the things that I hate. Um, Latifah, you have kids. I'm wondering if you've ever done something like this or considered doing something like this. If you've considered shooting a target full of pink or blue powder, <laughs> we have no idea what Christina thinks of, any
2: of it. So, no, I have not. Um, I, you know, I think that there are a lot of different dynamics going on. My, my, my gut reaction is always that this is horrible. I've been accosted and. Costco, um you know, by the two women at the membership counter asking me if my daughter was a boy or a girl oh my God. She, um and she didn't have earrings on, and it was a whole conversation, you know in my country, we put the earrings on in the baby when they come out of the hospital. It was like, oh, and so I have a lot of interactions with people when she was a baby about whether she was a boy or a girl, and things I could do. <laughs> To make it easier for other people to <laughs> determine her, gen- you know, whether she was a boy or a girl. Um, so I, I, you know, I I'm the kind of person like my my son came home the other day. He's two and a half, and he's like, you know, g- boys like trucks and girls like 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 uh, princesses and dolls. And you can like hear the veins Ugh. popping in my <laughs> How neck. How old is you can he? Just, he's two and a half. You can hear oh them popping and just you know and trying to keep it together. I think that when you're pregnant and you're excited, it's one more milestone. You know, I think that the, in reality, you're very excited. Your people want to, you know, share with you and they want to be really excited about the birth. And it's like one more milestone. It's like, okay, so um, you know, the weight, you know, the people want data like, were you having the baby? Mm-hmm. Are you going to stay home from work? There's lots of questions. And I think this is another one. And, and what's the, what do you know if it's a boy or a girl? People ask constantly. And you know, I can't say that it's it doesn't go back to the this idea that you have a preference you know you have a preference People want to know what the preference is without judgment of why you would have a preference but it's like what do you want what does your husband want uh you know what were you thinking it was going to be are you happy that it's a boy and don't you think
1: it's usually that everyone assumes that husbands in general want a boy I don't think that I've ever heard a guy say or, you know, somebody talking about a man say like, oh, he wants a little daughter. It's always like uh, a boy to play football with and and won't it be nice to like pass your name on to
2: whatever. I've heard. I mean, I know people that I know personally who have cried during their ultrasound when they were revealed the birth. Um, I know I've had a lot like my my own mother. I'm going to out by um, when I had my first (laughs) child and it was a girl and she like. I don't know if she dropped the phone, but she was like regaling and yelling and scooping and <laughs> hollering in the house. And my, and I was like, I'm assuming you're happy. But she was so happy she couldn't contain herself. And I was like, would you have had the same reaction if I told you huh. I was having a boy? And she didn't have an answer for that. But she was so – it was like that call. I found out I'm having a girl. And it was just wow. – balloons were popping in her head and it was like a pink whole – you know, Pink Oh, yeah. It was, it was, you know, rocket ships – rockets were going off in the air. You know, I think that there is still – I think this says a lot about where we are in terms of our expectations of, um, of our children and applying our own preferences for gender and gender norms um, onto our children, whether they're our children or other people's children. Um, it's – it's a scary thing. It's it's disturbing um, that not only is it, you know, there's a value on whether it's a boy or girl, but then what does that look like? And I think that's the other part of it that's really challenging is um, it is extremely difficult to buy gifts for babies or gifts for people having babies that where there's not a built in, this is a boy gift or a girl gift. This is a girl shirt or a boy shirt. You go shopping. There's a boy section and a girl section. And every single time I click on girl toddler versus boy toddler, I kind of cringe. I know I need to find him some pants. You know what I mean? But I'm just like, ah, you know, and because and, it's a slippery slope. It's not just the pants. You know what I mean? It goes well beyond the pants. And, you know, I've had, you know, emails to teach preschool teachers. I do. You know, I've had conversation, stern conversations with, you know, you know, people that I know, people in the street. It's a constant it's a constant battle to talk, talk to my kid. I've had arguments with my five-year-old, or uh, she was when she was little, she's seven, but she was younger, about a little boy in her class, and she was talking about you know color. There's a phase where everyone talks about their color. You know who likes what color, <laughs> and um, this is my color. and my husband was like, like well, you know, I like pink. And she would say, no, no, no. And we were saying, and your, and your friend likes pink, too. And your friend in class really likes this. And he, he has an Elsa shirt. And, and she, would, she wouldn't she would be upset. But you could see she was ch- she was churning to kind of, like, make sense of it. Like, I don't know. And I'm like, yes, he can wear an Elsa shirt. And it's fine. Yeah, Elsa I, from Frozen, for <laughs> listeners who are not familiar with oh, the, hopefully Disney, they all know. the Disney uh, movie.
1: Um, My sister also has a two-year-old. And... I am, you know, trying to radicalize her and divorce her from the gender binary as much as I can. And, you know, we were looking out the window one day and the garbage truck came by and she was like so proud. She was just learning to talk. It was actually a little before her second birthday. And she's like, garbage man. And I was like, or garbage woman. And she's like, <laughs> no, man. Like she was so proud. She thought she was correcting me like I was trying to trick her or something. And I was like, or woman. <laughs> you can be a garbage woman if you want. <laughs> and I'm like, she's – I I mean I intellectually knew that these – these, you know, elements of gender conditioning happen from the moment of birth because I saw it happen with her. Like, all these pink balloons. And I actually wrote down these shirts that somebody got her. One of them said, Mommy plus me equals one lucky daddy.
0: What does that even mean?
1: The other one said, I'm so cute. Mommy is gorgeous. Daddy is lucky. So it's like weirdly sexualizing. And like, as if my little niece was like, a mommy in training or, like, a gorgeous woman in training and, like, someone daddy would like to marry in training.
2: Um, My favorite for the little boys is chicks dig me.
1: Yeah, it's like Ugh. it's
2: like little pictures of chicks.
0: It's like let's triangulate
2: the family. <laughs> let's yeah. sexualize our child.
0: So I have, I have lots of thoughts on this. So I didn't – Gender you have
2: feelings. Of, Hopefully you have thoughts. I have, I have thoughts. I know. <laughs> well, Somebody I have, should have thoughts. I have a lot of
0: feelings too. Um, so was this a thing – like prior to, I don't know, like 2006. No. The gender reveal party, the first time I had heard about it was when I was living in Oklahoma and someone said they were going to a gender reveal party. I had no framework to understand what they were You're talking about. You're like, oh, about. someone's
1: coming out as trans. <laughs> exactly what they thought. <laughs> <laughs> Which
0: is, you know, something about the co- context that I'm coming from. And so I was like, this isn't a thing. Stop making up fake parties. It's, it's like promposals.
1: Mm-hmm. It's like. There was a piece in the Atlantic about that recently. About all the hyper celebration
0: things. But I think as I get older, I thought it was a weird idea back then, but as I get older and um you know, I'm a woman of a certain age. And so pregnancy and my friend group is literally the point where people just announce on Facebook when they have a baby because they are older, because um, you know, they're having um High risk pregnancies. Mm-hmm. They're you know deal I've I've I know several people who have dealt dealt with stillbirths or multiple miscarriages or failed IVF efforts. So talking about having a baby just changes when you get to a certain age. Huh. Where I don't engage anyone about their pregnancy. I never even thought about. That. I ask no questions. I have a number of people who I'm friends with, and they're like mm, popped out a baby last week. No <laughs> Nobody, nobody like, knew
2: I was pregnant with my second child. Actually, wow. It's,
0: there's so much discretion because. I think that one of the things that, you know, people were talking about when Michelle Obama becoming came out was about her talking about IVF. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this is kind of the new normal after a certain age. So the idea of gathering people to talk about, you know, a, even having a baby shower before the mm-hmm. baby is here mm-hmm. feels very stressful to mm-hmm. me. And it's very mm-hmm. outside of my friend group. Um, the other thing about it, I do not have children currently, but I am in the process of an adoption. Oh, my God. And that opens up all sorts of stuff about these kind of boundaries with people. So, you know, because – I don't think most people think I'm pregnant. So there's no conversation about like, what are you having? But when you engage the conversation about being in an adoption, everyone's stuff comes out. So it's like, isn't it expensive? How much did you pay for it? Oh why would you do that? Um, is there something wrong with you? And that's the discourse about like, what's going on <laughs> inside my uterus becomes, you know, a topic. Yeah. It's like, oh, and like, if you could have a biological child, why, why wouldn't didn't you? you? And having to explain to people about this option as a first choice, not a second choice or a third choice is really awkward and, and and violates a lot of boundaries, but I feel like it's important to talk about it. So I find myself in these conversations. And the other thing that people will then do is say, oh, I know someone who adopted a child. It was a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> so oh my then God. It's like, And so in the ways that I think pregnant women are told, like, oh, when I had a baby, I was in you know labor for nine you know days, and the doctor said it was the worst labor ever, and you know like all of my you know parts like <laughs> disintegrated. <laughs> right? People tell me that. I'm like, why are you saying this to a pregnant woman? I think for um, you know adoptive parents who are waiting, people will emphasize how long you've been waiting. <laughs> how it's like destroying you. And then all of the adoption horror stories. And I think that it is about a culture that on one hand wants to celebrate parenting and family, but doesn't have other frameworks in which to engage people on the topic. And so I think sometimes these celebrations are maybe kind of the, the glimmer of like community hopefulness mm-hmm. in a process that I think can, I mean, it's so personally you know, overwhelming that, it. you know, gender reveal parties seem to add another layer of this issue around how we talk
2: about parenting and family making that I still think that we have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I was excited in some way, again, on a cynical way, because, <clears throat> you know, this takes this goes well beyond the football by the bassinet, you know, which mm-hmm. is the traditional like, ready, ready for the boy. Wait, it, is that a thing? Is that a thing? Oh, the football, the football or the or the catcher's mitt. Yeah. Like traditionally, like back in the day when you found out it was a boy, there's like the traditional football or catcher's mitt. The dad what do you would bring put over. beside a girl? I don't know. That's a very good question. <laughs> but that's what that, my vision. It's very, it was, you know, I feel like it was very co- common I've in like, the 70s and 80s. It goes way beyond that. But in some way, though, I, I feel like a little bit vindicated because I feel like I'm always trying to convince people in the world that you know, sexism and stereotypes and, you know, oppression is is so there. And so when I see people, like, in the woods, like, shooting <laughs> next to their pregnant wife and, you know, like, you know, rifle, I love all of the, like, or stances, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, like – um Pistols or 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 pearls, pearls, you know. It's always alliterative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's it's and so things like that. And I'm like, yes, exactly, because people want boys to shoot and kill things Mm -hmm. and people, and they just want girls to be just vessels waiting Mm -hmm. um, for their life. And then so and so when I see the way the marketing, the Pinterest boards, like you know the things that you can buy now for the reveals and the types of alliterative, there's some sure there's more like tiaras in. Then, trucks
1: yeah trucks and I, tiaras there's yeah, a bunch like, firefighter or
2: fairy yeah yeah there's <laughs> or, so or, or board stupid. yeah <laughs> exactly so there's all these things that i'm just like yes this like ju- this like verifies all of the horrors of like the parents and like that you're, you're you're dropping your kids off to school with and the norms that people expect and have and hold and why we have to like crush the patriarchy and I I think that if I'm you know not being generous,
1: the, having a gender reveal party is a way of being proud of having those expectations, or and, totally and oblivious, being proud of that sexism, or oblivious. But I do think the fact that it that these became popular. it it kind of coincided with an increase in trans visibility in public life and a a not coincidental increase in um, efforts in legislatures to curb Mm -hmm. trans rights Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, backlash from politicians, uh, you know, Jeff Sessions and like this, this increasing rage that we've seen around trans people having human rights and being able to exist in public space. I think people who have a gender reveal party under you know, this framework that we're currently living in are saying, like, you know what? There are two genders. I am I know what it is as soon as somebody sees a penis on an ultrasound or not. And uh, I, I'm going to make sure all my friends know that, like, this is what I expect of my child. If I'm being generous, I would say that, you know, there are It almost seems like there's no way to properly appreciate what a big deal it is to have a baby. Like, you can have a baby shower. Like, it's just such a huge thing Mm -hmm. that it's almost like the more pomp and circumstance Mm -hmm. you can put around it, the better. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other thing is, like, when I think about it as much as I would like to think, like, oh, I don't see gender and like I'm treating all kids differently. No, because I'm a feminist and also because I write about this stuff all the time, I really see gender and I know that my sisters, uh, girl child and her boy child will be treated differently in the world and already are being <laughs> treated differently, you know, when they're under three years old, both of them. And so I ha- find myself treating them differently to s- try to counteract that. And so when you find out the your kid's sex and you have a uh, what I am going to start calling a genital reveal party just to try to make it, make the weird sexualizing undertones clear, That's better. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people are trying to say like, oh, this is a way for me to know this child. Um, when you really can't know a child until it comes out, so so now I have this idea of what their life might be like.
2: Maybe people, sh- maybe we should give people another idea. Maybe like it's a name reveal party, yeah, or a like you know. Um where my kids going to preschool reveal <laughs> party. I don't know, but you're right. Like there's this feeling of this is like the biggest moment of your life. And people in fact are very interested in what's going on with your business and mm-hmm. they want to be involved and they want to ask you questions and they want to get you gifts. And so maybe we just are out of ideas and we need to come up with some different ways that people can fet the pregnant person or the expecting, um, adoptive parent in their lives, you know?
0: Most of my good stuff comes from Oprah. And um, she used to have this woman on Dr. Robin, who was a therapist. And, um, you know, Robin revealed that she had a troubled marriage and she would hide it. And she says that now that um, – Did she have a
2: reveal party? No. But well, well, she revealed a lot about her ex-husband.
0: But um, one of the things that she said is that when she finds out a person was engaged to be married, instead of saying congratulations or that's awesome, she would say, well, how does that make you feel? And, it Whoa. and like, talk about real – As do- an
1: engaged person, that question <laughs> would – make my mind explode. I ruin everything. (laughs) So now
0: when people talk to me about these milestones, I'm like, well, how are you feeling about it? Like, let's check in about it. I know it can be overwhelming. And what I have found is I think I'm more helpful. Huh. When I ask people how they're feeling or how they're handling the emotions of something, then if I congratulate them or say, Well, why don't we throw you a party? Because, um, again, as I get older, I think I become more comfortable with the fact that even our m- most exciting move, uh, moments can also inspire a lot of questions and doubts. And sometimes we just need other people to recognize it. Yeah. I think people
2: are socially awkward. I mean, you know, like Deeply. what you're putting forth is it takes such a <laughs> level of like, you know, maturity and like self awareness. I mean, really, I mean, this idea. The idea of, like, just having a thoughtful and meaningful interaction with somebody is so much harder than just showing up with, like, you know, a, a blue rifle or a pink ruffle. <laughs> Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. The other thing about the the shooting gender reveal parties, I feel like there's a little bit of one-upmanship now with gender reveal parties. And so it used to be – I remember several years ago seeing just – you know, someone opening the an envelope or, or something. The envelope, yeah. oh, like then col- it turned into these things that you could buy cakes. on Etsy or whatever in colored right. cakes and, you know, where you give them a sealed envelope and then they bake a thing for you or like opening a box and some sort of confetti comes out or whatever. But now, you know, I think men needed a way to be involved mm. that didn't feel soft and gentle like a baby shower where you're opening all of these like breast pumps and diaper pails and stuff. And so it's like how could a man be involved in a child's birth? explosives yeah exactly (laughs) something that could start a forest fire touchdowns
2: or tutus oh so
1: good so so (laughs) so good and so bad but yeah there is something kind of satisfying about how how it lays bare the sexism inherent in you know trying to build your kid's life around what their genitals looked like on your ultrasound Mm -hmm. well now that we've solved that uh Actually, this is something that I'm also excited to see what our listeners send us. Um, Have any of you had a gender reveal party or been to a good one? And what are your thoughts about them? at Slate.com is our email address. All right. Say Her Name, The Life and Death of Sandra Bland is a new documentary that premiered Monday, December 3rd on HBO. It was directed by Kate Davis and David Heilbroner. Uh, Marsha, why don't you tell us a little bit about the film?
0: So the film looks at... The circumstances leading up to and some of the questions that were raised by the July 2015 death of Sandra Bland, who was on her way um, to a new job at uh, Prairie View A&M, her alma mater. She was setting up her new apartment. She was on her way to the grocery store and she's pulled over by a police officer and then. There are a number of questions as to the protocol when she was put in a Waller County, Texas jail um, and the fact that within a couple of days um, she was dead. And so the official line was that she had committed suicide. Her family is incredibly concerned about this narrative. They feel like it's inconsistent with everything they knew about her and the fact that they had communicated with her about bonding her out. And I think that this documentary is helpful for us to think about that period between 2014 and 2017 when the national conversation about race, police violence, police brutality, and responsibility was front and center in the news and how Sandra Bland was actually the first woman who was able to remain in the national conversation. Mm -hmm. So many of these conversations revolved around men. And so entitling the documentary Say Her Name, it's a nod to the efforts of the African American Policy Forum and other activist groups that were saying that the issue of police violence is not just about men, that it's about um, women, it's about girls, but it's also about the different ways that violence finds itself in communities. And so while many of us are aware of these high-profile cases in which a person lost their life. There are also situations of sexual violence between police officers and people who are being arrested, um, kids in juvenile detention centers, and people who are in institutions where they don't have the platform to tell their story. And so this documentary does a good job in talking about Sandra Bland as a person, as well as some of the areas in the investigation that raised concern among activists and among her family. There's a lot of time spent with Sandra Bland's mother and her sister and her friends and her community, as well as a lot of conversations. I was surprised by the access that they were able to get to members of law enforcement in Texas. And I think that one of the most powerful moments... In a co- in the commentary part was a young woman who went to Prairie View and says, "You know, it's campus police, it's the local police, it's the county sheriff, it's the Texas Rangers, and that level of policing of of black people, I think, really needs to be amplified as to." People's attitudes and perceptions about whether they can get justice. it isn't just about one bad interactions, it's the multiple places that people are intersecting with a system that is not designed to serve and protect them
1: yeah, I uh, was also really impressed by the access they got not just to the um, members of law enforcement in Waller County, but um to Sandra bland's family. I mean, I read a little bit about how the directors got that access, and I mean, you know, days after her death, they went down there and apparently several documentary teams went down there to try to ask the family and convince them to let them sort of follow them through this process. Um, and the the directing team, which is two white people, um, they had done several documentaries in the past about um, issues of justice and injustice. Um, and so Sandra Bland's family chose them as as the team that they would allow into extremely Emotionally fraught and intimate moments at her gravesite, um, in meetings with their legal team, and uh, you know, as much as I followed this in the news, I guess as much as anybody else who's interested in these issues, um, and was horrified to to learn about the circumstances of her death. Um, I learned a lot from this documentary, and the fact that they, the things that really hit me were um, like the videos from her life. I think they did a good job of establishing the person she was, which, you know, she was an activist and a person who really put herself out there. She had a whole web series called Sandy Speaks where she would talk about, um, you know, racial injustice and and police violence and, and her own efforts to try to get people to understand each other. It's uh, a level of humanity. This documentary gives her a level of humanity that a lot of victims just don't get.
2: I don't know. What, did you guys learn anything new in the documentary? I th- you know it's funny I had the, the same words that you're using I, humanity came up for me but it also came up for all the characters in in the film not just her I think that her central was her humanity especially the weaving in of her personal videos that she her her uh, cell phone videos mm-hmm. I think it was also quite timely that she was actually trying to be sort of like a teacher. She was explaining that there was this moment that we all have and we have social media and we should use it. And look, I'm using my phone and I don't even have my battery charged and it's going to die soon, but I'm still doing this video. And you can do the same thing. And I think that there's something about the moment we were in and this person speaking so much of what a lot of folks were thinking and speaking themselves. And then this happening to her that take a lot of wind out of the, the rhetoric, which is This is all a lot of to do about nothing. Hmm. There are these isolated cases of these unfortunate situations of people being killed. There's not a crisis and these activists who are standing up and saying that, you know, the nation is at this moment are just overreacting to some things that really horrible things that happen. And I think showing somebody who's talking about the reality of these things and the everyday experience that shapes why she feels the way she does and why we need to talk about racism and why we need to talk about, you know, our relationships with white people, she talked about a lot. And she also came from this this place of We all need to have to have these conversations. It was really clear that they chose clips where she was like, we have to live with white people. We have to, you know, talk with white people and have relationships with them. She kept saying that I'm not trying to be, you know, um, she should talk about not wanting to be destructive or disruptive. And I think it also gave humanity to the movement in a way that I think was – unexpected. This idea that the people who are on the front lines and all of these other cases happening at the same time in the media um, are coming from real places. It's not just, you know, knee-jerk reactions from like opportunistic activists that I think some of the people on the other side of this who think that, you know, this is, you know, either racist, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter or it's an overreaction are seeing a very real experience. And I think the humanity, frankly, On all sides, the humanity of the lawyer who talked through his decision to take the case, um, the humanity of the the DA who, you know, who I was surprised—I don't know what I was thinking—but the DA, the sheriff, and there were maybe one more law enforcement person, or maybe I just got confused because he had his hat off. There,
1: there were one one or two more
2: people, but the DA and the sheriff were the two main ones. The two main ones, and I think. It was for the discourse around this issue. Their humanity was important, too, as flawed as you might think it was. They, One of them saying this was an unfortunate thing and, you know, you might look at me and think I'm a racist, but I'm not. And, you know, you might think that I'm going to make these decisions and these, and these you know, these, these these, bad judgment. I'm sitting there shaking my head like, oh, kinda, yeah, I mean, <laughs> <Yes>. you know. <laughs> That's exactly <you laughs> he, the nail on yeah, the head. <laughs> he's like, you think I'm a good old boy? He's just, like, just because I talk slower and, yeah. You know, and so I was like myself sort of like,
1: oh, you know, you kind of the bill. So, But also, it wasn't just that he talked slower. No, of course, and, not. You know, of course. It, was it was also because he, he said things sure. like, well, she was not a model oh, traffic my stop.
2: I'm <sighs> like, what is a model traffic stop? I but I think it showed the fact that like for people – I think that there are people who are in the trenches, who are in these communities like this town. Then there are people who are just like living their lives. They're not either – you know, in racial, you know, like, you know, with places where racism is a big deal. But I think on both sides, both on like in black communities and white communities are people who are like, come on, can we just like move past these things? And I think both of these stories of the sheriff who's clueless and the DA who's like, what? You know, and this woman's story for people who, all over who are like, you know, this is just a wave. This is just a phase that this country's going through. This is not really symptomatic of a deeper problem. And I think that that exists on both sides, whether you're, you know, the progressive side and the, Mm -hmm. you know, but I think there's a middle America piece of this where people are just not in these supercharged environments, or they're not activists, or they haven't been a victim, or they don't have black sons or whatever the thing is. And they don't, make the connection. So I think that was something that was really significant and surprising about the movie. But I but I think that the audience appeal, I don't know if multiple, you know, people across the spectrum will watch it. But I think that it does something to reach people who are not entrenched in either law enforcement, Blue Lives Matter, or in the Black Lives Matter movement. And I appreciated that, um, that scan that the, the filmmakers took.
0: One of the things that I think, um, was so, you know, poignant was, you know, her mother kept on saying she was just, she just was running out to the grocery store. And the fact that there is this precarious way in which, um, people of color live where an errand can be a death sentence or a bad day can be your last day. And I think after 2014, I'd have these conversations with, you know, my friends about the police and what scares them and all of this kind of stuff. And, you know, I remember, you know, driving in Missouri when I was in college being pulled over at night and being just terrified, mm-hmm. right? Just terrified. And um a white friend of mine told me a story about how when she was in high school, her friends would throw rocks at police cars. And I I'm literally almost fell on my chair. I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, you know, my town, kids get a little rowdy. She was white and she was talking about this story. I was like, what are you talking? I was at the anxiety that that kind of Engendered to me. I'm like, you did what? And so I think that there is something that a critical mass of Americans miss that being a person of color means that you cannot conduct yourself in the ways that normal, healthy human beings do in frustration and being annoyed. She was frustrated and annoyed that she was being pulled over. You are well within your right to do that. Um, but the way that that simple fact has to be reiterated. I think the movie did a really good job in having her family say, you know, what was this for? Mm-hmm. And then there's this bizarre thing that they do, um, where they try to say, well, she was she had smoked some marijuana. And you know, when people smoke marijuana, anything could happen. And that that would lead to suicidal ideation. And that would lead to being so you know, it, it, it's it's the incredible work that has to be built around who people are. In order to justify
1: yeah.
0: a loss and an inability to see that um, when people of color are lost, that people miss them and that they're mourned. I think that this is what the past few years has really been about when people talk about Black Lives Matter. It's that that people have substantive lives and communities and people who miss them. Yeah. And I think that there's a... There's a segment of the population that had to be convinced of that.
2: I also think that it was significant that this movie was done about a woman, frankly. I mean, there was a, this is a time where a lot of these cases were getting media attention, which is a good thing in some ways. But I think that the, also getting past people sort of chalking up these in, in, negative interactions with the police as – you know, part of this unfortunate paradigm of there's a black man and a cop and oh, well, sometimes things just go south. What can we do? It's it's America. I think that also helped a little bit in the conversation to say like, this is not about, you know, it, th- there's this This is not about a like a, a, a type of person, which I think a, l- a lot of people, you know, walk away from saying like, I don't want to talk about Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, you know, there's if there are trends that black men are being killed because maybe black men are on the wrong. I just think that it takes off that sort of like look, this is not, this is a problem we have with law enforcement, not with black men, you know? And I think that that was also extremely helpful. And honestly, like, there's a lot of stigma growing up about I had a lot of very deep feelings about the South, like not being from New York and just hearing things and having family members who were from South Carolina where we came from and just sort of like watching movies. Every Martin Luther King Day at school in the auditorium, you would, you know, come up with the black and white films and everything and hear stories about horror horrors happening back in the 50s and 40s to black people in the South. And I think for the watching the movie, so many moments I had where they would show like, you know, you know, some very, very like dusty you know, vacant road and the sheriff saying, you know, I'm just a country sheriff and all these like moments of like isolation and desolation that freak me out. And, but I have in my mind as like an old time or an old scary time for (laughs) people and black people moving through the South that the, the, the showing the outside of the, and the tops of the buildings. Like, I think that the visual of this very stark, you know, place in t- like that seems to be stuck in time was also like, that's the reality of where people live and go to college and go to, you know, move from Chicago to go to experience education. And so that was also like, kept tugging at me this idea that I was like, you're not supposed to have these, you know, these, you know, preconceived and stereotypical civil notions about the South. But here, here's this whole thing playing out of like, you know, we're over policed, we we don't have fancy ideas about, you know, fill in the blank, like equality and like justice <laughs> or, you know, and and it's all very – you know, the, the bail guys across the street, he can just walk on over anytime and get – I mean it's just the small town nature, the, the, the isolation, this idea that, you know, I'm trying to imagine this happening and of course we know it happens everywhere. But that, you know – People not having access is another such a big deal. And like we have these conversations and these sort of like centers of like metropolises and the idea that sometimes these things happen. Literally, you 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 can't – there's nowhere to go. There's yeah. no, There's nobody to call and there's nothing that you can do. And that just also sort of made me very tense and and empathize in a way that I think we don't often see.
1: Well, to the point of access, I think another thing that the film does is – uh, show how how crucial her family was to the process of trying to get some sort of semblance of justice and also, you know, helping the rest of us understand what went on. And, you know, what you were saying, Marsha, about people not believing that black people, that anyone will miss them or that they have these lives and histories and, and families to go home to, uh, her family says at one point, you know, they didn't know who you belonged to, When they did that to you and they don't know, they didn't know how much you would be and sort of like you fucked with the wrong people here. And like for people who, you know, if her family wasn't able to fly down from Chicago or to hire this attorney or had access to even know that they had any sort of recourse in a situation like this, we might not have known that any of this went on. And we also have the bystander video to thank for that. Um, But, you know, watching the film, I was struck at every point in the traffic stop video Uh, In the video from the jail, in the interviews with her family and the DA and the sheriff, like all the points where it could have gone differently and all the points at which none of it would have happened if she was a white woman, like from the from the very start of her getting pulled over for Mm -hmm. for not signaling to change lanes to allow a cop car to pass her. Uh, That was why she was pulled over. And I just like, even though I knew the ending, at every point, I was like, it could have gone differently there, you know? Um,
0: One of the things that I, I thought was also interesting, and it's such a small point, but I think it really speaks... Volumes about how this works. Um, at one point, she I think had called her sister to ask um, to, for money to bail her out, and it, and I think her sister said, "I only have a hundred dollars." Yeah, and so she didn't have the like the cash at the moment. And they said, "Well, we'll, we'll get it together." Yeah,
1: her bond was set at five thousand, and the bail bondsman said he needed five hundred. So that wasn't and her sister enough.
0: only had a hundred, and I think that says something yeah. as
1: well, right? When
0: we think about not just kind of. Um, what you need to intervene. But sometimes it's, you know, if it's at the end of the month and you're going to get another paycheck and you're a few dollars short, you don't have access to that. And had she maybe not been in that accident previously, maybe they wouldn't have known that lawyer, right? And so all of these contingencies in order to have the opportunity for the justice system to fail you (laughs) is how powerful kind of race and gender and class work together. Um, You know, for her they you know there was something about this that was um particularly moving in watching these videos because she reminds me a lot of the students i teach who are trying to find their way and who are you know i got a sense that you know there that there are a lot of that they were very transparent but there were a lot of ups and downs in her life right and she had previously been arrested and for you know again marijuana possession. possession small small levels of drugs and she didn't pay um, she didn't pay the fine. What she did, she sat it out in jail, right? And when you think about that, and the fact that they said, you know, she had a tough time finding a job, well, when you're sitting in a jail for 30 days, mm-hmm. you can't really do job searches. And so I hope that when people watch this film, they pay attention to the background details that I think are also really illustrative of the ways that inequality reproduces itself among people who are in better positions than others to, you know, try to advocate for themselves and their families and their communities. And so um, there's so many parts of this that I felt that same feeling that you did of, oh, my gosh, why doesn't the story just stop right now? Mm-hmm. Why doesn't someone notice? Why doesn't someone check? And I think one of the things that the filmmakers had to kind of resist is the impulse to do this as prestige true crime and i think that that's really hard with these stories as well yeah. because there is there's some there's a lot of questions and there's a feeling that this could delve into the malfeasance and the failures of the system and i think they do they kind of sober themselves a little bit to not do too much of that and lose sight of a story about a family and a story about black women in america as well and i think that's a really hard um balance to strike
1: yeah all right, we'll leave it there. I highly recommend this documentary. If you end up watching it and have any thoughts, we'd love to hear what you think. Uh, the waves at com. Uh, time for our recommendations. Marsha, why don't you go first?
0: So this holiday season, you have a lot of choices in what you can gift to people <laughs> in your communities. I highly recommend the New Territory Magazine. The New Territory Magazine is a magazine devoted to telling dynamic stories about the lower Midwest. It is none of this... All Trump voters, all white, no culture, flyover country stuff that we usually get. The New Territory magazine at newterritorymag.com is a beautiful magazine that comes out four or five times a year. And it just tells really... Honest and dynamic stories about the organizing that's happening in the Lord Midwest, the various ways that people are trying, trying to stay connected to the places that they grew up, um, the struggles of the economy, the rich history of various communities. So I highly recommend that you subscribe to the new territory.
1: Are there any particular stories that you want to call out? Yes. Um, There is
0: a spread about the Ozarks called Mm -hmm. Land, People and Possibilities in the Great Plains and Ozarks. Again, not the Netflix show, um, but the story (laughs) about um, Missouri. And I think the fact that this is a magazine that's edited by a young woman who I don't even know if she's 30 yet. And it's really based on the principle that we can't have Good print journalism, we can pay writers and we can have beautiful photography available to people.
1: That sounds fantastic. Um, I would first just like to second Noreen's recommendation of uh, the third season of Serial that uh, follows One Courthouse in Cleveland. Um, I was especially reminded of it when I watched this documentary, um, Say Her Name, uh, because I think it does a good job of depicting how punishments. You know, meted out by the justice system or injustice system, don't begin and end with those punishments themselves. They have ripple effects that go into communities, and they have lasting effects in people's lives. And you could argue that that's what we want. But that's, you know, the 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 punishments that we want to impose on people are not always the way that they play out in communities, and uh, the you know the. The people that they talk to, I think the specificity with which they treat these stories, it's not just about systems. It is about systems, but it's also about the specific characters that animate this courthouse. It's an extremely good series. And I have another recommendation. That's something later. Uh, the Good Place, an NBC show that I – stream on netflix um i only started watching this recently after so many people i respect told me it was so funny it looked so cheesy i don't love Kristen bell i didn't think i was gonna like it but it is extremely funny and charming and very weird in a way that appeals to me uh there's just so many like good one-liners but it also rewards really close viewing for these repeating motifs and and the details um, one of the writers is Megan Amram, who is a fantastic comedian, and uh, you can see her sort of bizarre sense of humor threaded through the show. Um, it's like 20 minutes per episode, which also appeals to me uh, when, you know, so many of these good TV shows are an hour or more. But this I can just like put on while I'm cooking dinner or something. And it's I always have a laugh. Latifa. Do you have something for us?
2: So I am um, in the same vein of holiday shopping. I am going to recommend some children's book Ooh. for the young, the young woman in your life. Uh, so um, a couple. One is called, which one of our favorites. It's called uh, Paper Bag Princess uh, by Robert Munch. and essentially, um, there's a there's a girl, there's a, a young a young woman um, who who um, ends up saving the prince who gets taken away and locked into the um, tower by a dragon and after she saves him she's really dirty and like you know tired and her prince the the guy who's going to be the prince says you look terrible and your hair's messed up and your clothes are dirty and essentially that's how the story <laughs> she calls him a bum and like you know puts on a paper bag because that's all she had because all her clothes got torn from saving him from the dragon it's a really funny story <laughs> um, and so at the end she basically is like well you know what you're 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 terrible you're weak and you're a bum and she kind of like she takes her paper bagged dress self and sort of like you know runs into the sunset and that's how the story ends Um, you didn't give us a spoiler alert Latifah sorry (laughs) Um, but it's it's a really it's really cute and um, we really we really really like it a lot and at first I thought it would be rude to say um use the word you're a bum because that's how she c- talks to the guy at the end but then we decided it was fine for our <laughs> daughter and she would just go with it the other one is not All Princesses Wear uh, dress in Pink uh, by Heidi Stemple. And essentially, it's a bunch of girls all dressed in princess gowns, having tea or whatever. And then a book takes them into different scenarios throughout the day. Uh, they're, they're playing ba- basketball. They're playing soccer. They're doing all types of really cool things. And then they come back and have a party. And some of the princesses are in overall. Some of the princesses are in tracksuits. Some of the princesses are in tutus. <laughs> um, and they've had a very full day. And at the end, they're having a ball and they're dancing and all their various Non princessy princess clothes. Wow! So, does your daughter like princesses? Uh, there was definitely a princess <laughs> phase for which these books were the antidote. So I had to. <laughs> I love that. I had to balance um, out. There's there. There are more uh, princesses. Princess in black. I don't is 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 a good a good series too. Um, so I, you know, I tried to sort of not. Resist! You can't just be like princesses are no good. It doesn't work <laughs> that way. So what I tried to do is just sort of have a whole like library of different ways to think about princesses and all that. things princesses. And apparently, um, it, it seems like she's sort of like phasing out. I just threw a bunch of princesses in the trash um, the other day. <laughs> princess if, what? And she didn't know. Princess
1: books or princess outfits
2: or princess dolls. Oh. I threw away Jasmine and Elsa and. Elsa's a queen, I know. Um, <laughs> and a lot of other that you know, the the frog, I can't remember her name. Oh yeah, the princess and the the princess fro- frog. What's the what, what, was, the her princess and what was her, frog. Was her uh, name? Though? She went in the trash too though. Tiana, Yeah, Tiana, Tiana. Tiana went. They all went. Uh-huh. Bye-bye
1: those books sound really good um thank you everyone for listening that's our show today thank you especially to our production assistant alex barish our wonderful producer danielle hewitt for latifah lyles and Marsha chatlin i'm christina Cotterucci.